1: Welcome to 3. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Novak Djokovic is your 2023 Australian Open champion. Number 10 in Melbourne. Number 22 overall. Let's start with the big picture stuff as he wins the Australian Open, dropping just one set to Enzo Cuoco. The final against Pass, he wins in straight sets. But when it comes to... I guess what this win means you got to start with how much it clearly meant after winning it and then he said that it's one of the most uh challenging tournaments of his career possibly the most and then he called it the biggest victory of his career and his reaction it it seemed like that was what he was feeling inside of him joel why do you think it was so overwhelming for novak and he spoke so glowingly of this triumph
2: well let's address one big theme about this australian open that's happened in recent years among our big three it's redemption it's the slam of grand redemption and for novak there was the um not being here last year so that sets one thing and then this is this injury that we'll never know the full extent of it but as gorn even Izvic said what 97 percent of players wouldn't have even played so the injury but i think i think it was remember Where was this guy a year ago in Australia? He was in that hotel, and then he was sent out of the country. So that mattered to him. And then, of course, there's the the pursuit of the record. But it's really interesting to me how the happy slam is also kind of the redemptive slam. Now, look what it was for Rafa last year. Look what it was for Roger when he won in 2017. And I think that's altered the significance of the Australian Open as kind of like showing something at the beginning of the year. And it will have implications... Later in the year for the U.S. Open, because that used to be the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open was that Pete Sampras, his last match, Agassi uh, becoming number one, Uh, back to Jimmy Connors and Yvonne Lenzel. So it's interesting how the Australian Open with these guys. And I think for Novak, all this stuff, I mean, it's so emotional when he finally won. Amazing.
3: When... Last year happened with Novak in that hotel and being deported and being detained at the border and how prolonged the story was, I said that it was one of the most incredible sort of Dramatic sports stories slash news stories that I've ever covered in my career. And I've covered just about all the major sports and news. I've done a lot of news. It had like this global um, interest in it. And when he came back to Australia, I think you could call it redemption. You could also call it revenge. Whatever, however you see that, what it was was fuel for him. And he was not going to be denied. And he played like that. I I just thought it was um, an incredible full circle sports story. And uh, the rest is still unwritten as they say in the song, because Nadal and Djokovic are tied at 22 now. And and this was uh, a pretty amazing way to, to tie the record.
1: Well said guys. And I... I also felt like it was the the circle closing amy you said full circle but uh, i don't think novak could turn the page on what happened at the start of 22 uh until he had that moment at the end of the match and and i just feel like he felt like he was in such a hole. As a result of everything that happened last year, he he goes into Wimbledon. He's down two slams suddenly to Nadal, and ever since then, it has been an incredible push by Novak to, I think, get back to even and to get back to the Australian Open and winning the Australian Open. So it it almost felt like I'm out of the hole. I've I've finally kind of emerged from I guess that trauma and you know it it just felt like all right we're back um so i think i think that kind of captured the emotion for novak um can can we talk about the context of novak's uh, australian open dominance number well, that's 10 a
2: perf- that's a perfect segue Gil. I, yeah, yeah number 10 and also i think to get back to the circle and his thing it's interesting how each of our three um the first slam they won was the slam that became their slam of ownership. Rafa in Paris, 14, Roger at Wimbledon, 8, and Novak with Australia, 10. So there's this whole ancestral homeland, and maybe for the last year, Novak was saying, okay, this is, (laughs) he will happen to win Wimbledon along the way too, his seventh time, but this is my place where I need to be, my spot. And I remember once uh, Jimmy Connors, after he won his fourth US Open, and he hadn't won a major, he hadn't won the Open in four years. He said, yeah, I'd won Wimbledon earlier. That was nice. That was a thrill. But the Open, that was business. Business as usual. And so it's a sense like, yeah, the ship is rioted. Because there was, did we see more emotion from Novak about this win than let's say the Wimbledon win?
1: Any win ever. I've never yeah. seen him mm-hmm.
3: like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right.
0: The I mean, except
3: when he lost at the U.S. Open to Medvedev. Um, right. He was pretty emotional then. But in a victory, I've never seen him this emotional.
2: The 2012 the epic in Australia, emotional because of just that was almost six hours and just so relieved to have gotten through that. But again, Australia, Australia for Novak. And that's very, very powerful.
1: What's amazing about about this final also is like, as much as it felt like, uh, I guess abnormally dominant men's final where it was straight sets, there there was competitiveness at points, especially in the second set. But still, it just felt very inevitable. Then you look back and you you, you take the full fuller context. Tsitsipas, what if I told you guys didn't do that bad? Uh, he did better than. Three out of the last four Australian Open finalists, Murray got beaten worse in 2016, uh, Nadal got beaten worse in 2019, and Medvedev got beaten worse in 2021. So he's, I guess we're getting to a point where it's it's very much on the same level, and maybe it has been for for a while. And I'm not I'm not putting the two next to each other and saying you know, one is better than the other or blah, blah, blah. But, like, it is on the Rafa-Roland-Garros level of Djokovic crushing in Australia. He's double digits now, and and so many of these runs have, and these finals particularly, which he has never lost, he's never lost semifinal or beyond, it's very on par, same level, tier one dominance with Nadal at Roland-Garros. Absolutely.
3: Well... I, Absolutely. Yeah. I think... It interestingly i go back to some comments that his father made a couple of years ago and i I know his father has turned out to be a controversial figure it came up again during this tournament and i by the way i'm glad that novak took on the topic of the youtube video that surfaced and i thought he did a great job of explaining what happened i found it to be a reasonable um explanation of what happened but um I think about how his father has said these controversial and done these controversial things over the years. But one of the things that really resonates with me was when his father predicted when it's all said and done, Novak is going to own pretty much all the records. And I think that's got a pretty decent chance of coming true.
2: Well, yeah, well, his father had his father a passionate believer in his son's possibilities. I mean, that's an interesting and thing. correct. I'll, well, to get back to the tennis, though, you know it's interesting with these matches. Sometimes I'll concede. I watch a match. I, 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 we talk about matches that I haven't seen as closely. But something I was very watching this match start to finish very closely. I remember Gil a couple of times. We we're texting during the match. And as far as inevitable goes, you know, I thought as that second set got a little thick, Novak did face a set point that he had to win, that he fought off with a very impressive uh, sequence of shots. And yeah, inevitable. I mean, that's the thing about competition. That's so tricky. Yeah, the resume is there. happens in the retro. So yeah, four, six, and six straight sets. But geez, I mean, even that second set tiebreak was, um, was exceptionally tight. And it became more difficult than you thought it would be because Novak got a, a big lead, just like even the third set tiebreak he was up and he lost a few points and, and the whole f- ebb and flow of tiebreakers at their level too. I mean, we've all talked about this and, you know, Amy, you all bring this up often about the competitive dynamic. And even for pros who have these big leads and tiebreaks and got points on your serve and mini breaks it's like, Oh, whoa, now it's five, four in the tie break. It's not five, one. So I think that match, I think system has fared better on the scoreline. And yet in other ways, in other ways, I wish, I wish he'd had a little more, um, Tactical gumption. And for me, that means coming to net, but it appeared quite, it was quite kind of thick, cold, and there's some executional challenges Sitspes had with the volley. So, and there's Novak, you know, these guys are three intangibles. Novak's fantastic at that stuff
1: Amy,
3: did it feel inevitable to
1: you? What did you think of of the match?
3: One of those matches that seemed like more of a blowout than the scoreline indicates, and I know it was straight sets, but the sets were close. Um, it seemed that Pass tried some things like Varying his return position, uh, standing closer to the baseline than he had in the previous matches in this tournament, and it just didn't work. Errors all over the place. Errors on the forehand of all things. And he's Pass is very good at the net. He knows how to volley. But I could really empathize with him when you're just not executing your volleys and then you lose confidence and you know it gets in your head so then you shy away from coming forward and um so really not a close match even though the sets were close that was my take
1: yeah i'm i'm in the same place you know technically it was close uh but I, I actually think it's the history between these two, which made it feel less close. Um, and and also what we know about Novak in Australian Open Finals and Major Finals. Because, I mean, I, I was just looking at their head-to-head just now. Djokovic has won five straight tie breaks against Tsitsipas. It might go back even further. That was just no, because uh, Tsitsipas won the first set tie break when they played in the Roland Garros final in 2021. Um, five straight tie breaks. So... We've watched Tsitsipas and Djokovic play a lot. Novak, for the most part, save for like the Astana final, he's not blowing Stefanos out. He's not. They're close. He's winning every time. So that's why I think it felt like another, here we go again. We've seen this. And why, you know, set point in the second set, two tie breaks. And yet it's like, all right, Novak had it. Start to finish. It was going to be him.
2: Oh, it stays funny. I don't, I don't see a match that way. I mean, I get, I get it. I get it how it, yeah, to play that. And you're right about how Novak has that whole, like, Stefanos, yeah, you, you, you surprised me when we first played and I take your measure. And of course we know the great, great players. Be on the lookout if you beat them once. <laughs> they're going to be, they're going to be coming at you. But the ebb and flow of the match, like, um, Gil, we texted during this, you know, for some time, <clears throat> excuse me, in the second set into the third Novak's depth was not nearly what it usually is <clears throat> and he was laboring and 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 we don't know the extent of the physical stuff but certainly i think some of the uh <clears throat> excuse me some of the um tactical and executional stuff with novak was kind of like a certain passivity i mean i want to see a player play novak and say to himself i don't care if i win this match i don't care how badly i lose my only metric of success is 50 50 times i come to net and how I get there and what I do to do it. And if he passes me 48 times, <clears throat> I don't care. I just want to kind of demonstrate. So I want to make a statement of sorts. I mean, so for, with that in mind, I'd like Novak, even though I suspect he'd be to my mom's to play Maxim Cressy. <laughs> yeah,
3: yes, I think Steve, I think Cressy would take you up on that. <laughs>
2: yeah, I want to see that occur. I want people to see that also as a diagnostic, as a field test to see what can happen, not for a score outcome, but just for a series of sequences. I mean, we we exchanged some recent texts recently about the whole uh, gestalt of Cervalli and the generational, not even just Cervalli, like, like when Tommy Paul said, um, yeah, Novak took that away from me. Well, he never tried it. So how do you know he took it away from him? A deep return is not a low return.
3: Yeah, and and many of Novak's returns are are deep, but they don't have a lot of pace on them. It, it's one of those things where it's like, how did he even get a racket on that great, great serve? Not only did he get a racket on it, but he sent it back deep, but it doesn't have a ton of pace on it. And I did post that series from Tommy Paul where he was successful on a deep ball return um, that just floated. And then he just took it on the rise and put it deep to Novak's backhand and then just ran the classic pattern and came in and uh, finished the point with a beautiful backhand volley to the open court. Um, but look, this is easier said than done. <laughs> You're playing against one of, if not the all-time greatest, on Rod Laver Arena, his preferred court. And the decisions are extremely challenging in the moment.
2: Absolutely. And here's he Seats Vested, his more experience than Tommy Paul, but it's still just his second slam file versus a guy who's played more than 30. And uh, I'm just I'm just looking at it as a as a developmental uh, modality.
1: OK, well, l- let me just say I, this was one of my big takeaways from the tournament, because uh, because we've discussed this and there have been a couple times where these matches have been. All, you know, one-way traffic for Novak, who's beating his opponent from the baseline. And in, in three cases, especially against Tommy Paul and against Alex Dimonor, he's playing very willing net rushers. Dimonor, very good volleys. Tommy Paul, excellent volleys. Pass, the best transition game, I think we all agree, now in the top 10, now that Federer's gone. The, and yet... Uh Demonor five of nine at net for the match. Paul eight of fourteen. Tsitsipas, 12 of 17. None of them were getting there. So I, I mean at a certain point, I look at Novak and and I understand I understand your point, Joel, about you just have to force yourself to do it. Um, especially in the case of Paul and Demonor who are getting smoked. So it's even more so. Like you you have to just do it. Um, but clearly, I think Djokovic's court positioning holding the baseline and his depth. It's making it feel like a suicide mission to come forward. I think that's what they're feeling on court.
2: Spot on and the aura and the resume uh, and their lack of, you know, not that these guys do it a lot in matches all the time anyway, because they, they get so much good results. I mean, again, there's a a developmental issue. I mean, I've always believed that if a player isn't that comfortable in the transition area, by the time they're 14 or 15, it's a second language. Doesn't mean they're bad. I mean, even Novak, it doesn't mean they're bad at it. They can be good at it. But and then, of course, if you're if you're losing and Novak, no, he he doesn't make it easy in rallies. Um, he makes it easy when you're serving, because it doesn't mean you're going to win the point. But like again, we talk about his depth on the return. That's because he's hitting the ball high over the net. So if he's hitting the ball high over the net, you're going to get a look at the volley. Make him. Let's see him come up. Uh, the match I'd really love to see in my fantasy mind is Novak versus Pete Sampras on a, re, uh, you know, just a guy who's going to, let's see how that could play, yeah. but and, just try it, find another way to lose.
1: And I, 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 think- I love that saying, but again, it's, I think it's the return position more than anything where it's one thing if Titi Pass were playing Medvedev, for example, and he's like, oh, the serve volley, it's there, Medvedev's on the back fence, Djokovic is on the baseline. So he doesn't feel like, I don't think he can, he feels like he's going to get there.
3: I think um, I always think of this clinic that I had the privilege of taking with this great coach at USTA named Steve Keller. Sorry if I've told this story before, but you guys can hear it again because it's good. Um, the The whole point of the clinic was when to approach in singles. And he had us take a small cone and there were four of us in the clinic and said, put the cone in the court where you think the depth is appropriate for you to approach. And my cone was, you know, closest to the baseline. And then another really good singles player, her cone was like very close to the net. So in other words, for her, the ball has to be super, super short for her to go into the net. And for me, I feel more comfortable even on some deep balls. And it occurs to me that a lot of these players, they want the short ball if they're going to come in. Uh, But there's other factors. And, And in that one point, Tommy Paul showed what one of the other factors is, and that is if your opponent is clearly in trouble, and you can see that in your periphery. It really doesn't matter how deep the ball is for you to approach unless it's a total defensive ball. If you can just run a pattern and and place the ball to a certain area, to a certain zone, and then go in and finish in the open court, of course, you have to have the athleticism and the skills to do and the speed to do it, then um, better than 50-50, you're going to win the point. And um, I just think that these guys are waiting for a, a certain depth that, with Novak Djokovic, you're never going to get because the the guy has incredible depth.
2: Right. So you're talking about the ball incoming to you on that drill, Amy. Yeah. And, so, and and you said, and in your mind, for when you're playing, if a ball bounces a foot inside a foot inside your baseline and it's well, the right three yeah. feet, three yeah. feet, it's fine. Yeah. See, here's the here's the trick with Novak, which he seems he's the least hurt. He might be the least player in tennis history because even when he's pushed to the corner you still see that balance you know it's not like he's he's leaning over and i've got him hurt and he's opening up the racket face he's always his posture is so good so even if you laugh if these players are lashing one into the corner and back there the gumby the agility the posture most of all and I'm, i'll share an interesting story that it's yeah and again we watch this we watch it on tv we watch it even in person and even sometimes from close to the court uh gill you've ball we've I once did a story. I got to um, I got to return Andy Roddick's serve, and it was I was going to have ten looks at his at his uh serve and see if I could get one back. And he's at the and and I'd seen I'd seen him from every possible angle except across the net. Now I'm across the net, and you realize against someone like that, court's not that big, and you see that you know that wiggle he used to do with his butt and in the serve, and it and here's the toss saying, Whoa! Here it's coming. All right, here it is, and so I I see for these Novak opponents, of course, they're way better than I'll ever be. Their sense of how they've earned the opportunity to dash forward or to sprint forward in the rally, but you know, some of this is also practice. You know, um, I was taught, for example, that the second the serve is by design a short ball. It bounces inside the service line. The first serve is pretty good sometimes, but someone like like a uh, Patrick Rafter, granted, different generation than Novak, he wouldn't stand for a second serve wait and, and just hit it and get the rally going. Okay, I'm, I've practiced this. I'm going to practice the, the chip charge. I mean, all these things are out of other generations. I get it. But I think as the game moves forward, as contenders emerge, they're going to attempt to try to do these things. They Mo, Novak might outlast them, but moving forward, that's why I think we're going to see a flourishing of styles. I mean, look at these, the recent number one Alcaraz, the almost number one Tsitsipas, This is very interesting this is kind of the the outgrowth of the three
1: yeah you bring up number one and i i remember that i didn't even mention at the top that djokovic is back to number one in the world at at 35 years old all right so if Pass is staying back i mean where where did you see the baseline advantage mostly coming from let's just cover our bases there um i love the way he attacks Titi Pas's backhand because I, I don't think he does so with any kind of monotonous predictability whatsoever. I think he goes at the forehand. I think he moves the ball around, and I think he doesn't make Titi Pas just hit backhands. He makes Titi Pas hit backhands under pressure, and and that's where he creates openings and and he can go after his forehand. Uh, then at the same time, there was a forehand reliability advantage for Djokovic. So uh, I know I'm throwing two ideas out there, but whichever one uh, you want to take to, Amy.
3: Yeah, I was really disappointed in the Pass forehand. It let him down. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, he probably thought, I've got to go for my forehand. Like uh, So he was probably pressing a little bit or wanting um, <clears throat> every time he... he- Got a forehand wanting to make it count. I, I really didn't, I, I'd have to look at exactly what happened, but I, I really didn't sense that Novak was attacking the backhand until about the middle of the match onward. Um, I don't know why he thought that that he would need to change strategy at that point, but whatever it was, it worked for him. And um, Pass was just coughing up errors on both wings. I mean, it's expected kind of on the backhand, but it's not as expected on the forehand. Also, I want to just point out that Novak's serving was dominant again. He was winning into the 80s again of his first serve points. So many love games. Um, also ser- serving well on second serve. And this was just making it doggone near impossible for Steph to get into any of these service games.
2: Yeah, that was a real master class and point construction and and weakness attack. And yet it's it's very, you know, it's so interesting. You know, down the chain with we, a weakness hit to it a lot. But at this level, it's sort of like hyper trigonometry of sort of like, yeah. I'm going to show you that I can hang with your strength for a while. I don't know. So I don't mean I'm going to break it down as much as I'm going to dare you to hit it or this early stage. Well, and then as we, as it continues, that's the, the strategy is baseline dominance. This tactic is yeah. For a while, your forehand. Okay. I I know that's your backhand. I know that's weaker, but that doesn't mean I have to hit it all the time. I'm going to do that because, because my forehand's not too, I can hang with you. I mean, Novak, his, his point construction, I mean, that, forehand backhand combination with his movement agassi i've always thought has the best forehand backhand combo ever as a striker but novak the striking is darn good but then when you throw in the movement and so he knows yeah okay this this one i can't afford to hit yet down the line kind of high lots of air you're not gonna hurt me go ahead hurt me i mean all this stuff and you see just all these different kind of questions kind of a little bit like uh Matt's V Lander, but with more power, just again and again. And you just see um Stefano's looking kind of confused. What's going on here? And then and we don't like we none of us wants to be confused when we're trying to compete against a better player.
3: Uh-uh.
1: It, yeah, he I, I just I feel that he brings the backhand defense and the backhand return into play. In such savvy ways, because of how he's constructing the points, where uh, I think a lot of people play a Pass or even a Berrettini or even a Rude, and these are all guys that Djokovic have have dominated. And they go to the backhand without purpose, expecting results, and they don't get the results. They they get their shots run around, and they uh, run into their their forehand, their opponent's forehands. Uh, they don't get the backhand misses that they're looking for because there's no pressure there, uh, and and Novak, it's it's so much better for him. And yes, the the movement, Joel, um, that that you're discussing off of both wings, there's such a big difference between the backhand defense between between Djokovic and Tsitsipas, and you see how often that comes into play, and it's very very striking because so many of those Tsitsipas forehand errors are because of Djokovic's extension of the rally defensively. Uh, I saw that that so many times, and particularly I have... You know how sometimes you have like a, a technical pattern that pops up like several times in the match and it kind of is ingrained in your head? For me, one of them is Djokovic's open stance backhand, hard through the middle, and Titi Pash trying to go inside out on the forehand and catching it late, and the mm-hmm. ball goes wide. And it's, wow, the depth and the pace that Novak got on that open stance defensive backhand was so good that Tsitsipas caught the ball late and he couldn't hit the inside out that he was looking for.
2: Right. And the depth. And also, there's also a thing I think, I think I've think i talked to players where sometimes they have a game plan and have ideas, but then there's also kind of like, what's the ball telling you? It's like, a, it's like what's the smell of the ball? Oh, I hit it there. Got it. It only came back at about a four. I thought it was going to be a seven you know and 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 so there's these things this this diagnostic and i think the great thing about novak so many high stakes matches so much experience in long matches that he knows that those first 20 30 minutes can be almost diagnostic and let's just see and it's like yeah okay how is that forehand today it's like a dentist probing and probing and and then see and then i and i i know about that soft spot on that backhand we all know that so but we'll we'll be back and just it's but 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 so he doesn't have to just Go after it early. I mean, it's just it, it is I think I hope over the course of this year, I certainly I intend to do this to to write and study more about kind of the the Novak genius. I think, you know, Roger's gone. His genius has been thoroughly dissected, um, though there'll be more ahead. Rafa is in a certain kind of flux. His his genius is more, you know, he would he would just keep hitting cross-court forehands to that backhand. And that and that's fine too. But uh Novak is there's something. Really exciting about watching him do this and seeing this go on. I mean, this tournament he played; the draw wasn't as as deep as some other majors he's won, but still very so impressive.
3: It's amazing where we're at right now with the one-handed backhand. Pass had a great tournament by almost all standards. I mean, he made it through this tournament in flying colors with a one-handed backhand, which many people see as a liability. And and he's great. I mean, he's he's elite. He's one of the best in the world right now. Uh, and yet he is so far from Novak right now. And against Novak, that one-handed backhand really seems like a major weakness.
2: Yeah, it's a, well, and it's a, it's, I would, I would disagree. No, anyone who calls it a liability doesn't, it's just not as, productive for us it could be though i saw saw some signs in this tournament that he's worked to make the slice somewhat better somewhat better at times technically it's a a little bit improved but i think he still needs to really learn how to deploy it learn how to hit it learn how to hit it better i don't think he understands the form as well listen to me i'm talking about a guy who's almost number one in the world.
1: no you're right though i think every anyone who i've heard tons of former players who are brilliant about technique they they break it down and they don't like how he how he hits that shot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it has gotten better. It has. Um, I, I thought the backhand in this match from, like, when his feet were set and it was a neutral position, I thought he hit a lot of great ones and it was very good. It's just when you po- poke it in certain ways, that that's where it breaks down. By the way, set point in the second set is a great example of that. Tsitsipas backhand uh, defense into a Djokovic forehand winner uh because because it just wasn't strong enough um on the defensive ball so um oh by the way match point same thing that's right so novak back to number one even with nadal at 22 there's going to be kind of a a dormant period probably through february um with nadal uh being injured and and novak likely to rest and not going to be able to play Uh, the sunshine double. So we will, uh, we'll find some things to talk about. It's what we do on this show. Uh, but for now, uh, that is all. So Djokovic straight sets your 2023 Australian open champion. He comes full full circle after the trauma of last year. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember we're available on all podcast platforms. Appreciate it. If you leave a rating and a review on apple and Spotify, and if you're watching on YouTube, Like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of Three.